Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number 10 of the series, From the Book of James, with speaker, Pastor Steve Penninger, entitled, Real Faith, Let's God Be God, from James 4, 11 through 17. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. Lord, we are grateful to be here. Lord, it's just a blessing to come together and sing your praises. Lord, it's what we were created to do, and we feel that. We thank you for the whole family of God and those that we get to gather with here today. Lord, now we sit under the teaching of your word. Speak to us through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a pastor friend who years ago stood up in front of his people one Sunday morning and uh, made the following announcement. He said, today as I stand before you, I want you to know that I have made a very, very important decision. I have decided, he said, to submit my resignation. As you can imagine, the congregation gasped and the people were looking at each other bewildered and they're thinking, what? What's going on here? Things in the church seem to be going fine. What's this all about? He continued, he said, effective immediately, I'm hereby resigning as head of the universe. It's become apparent to me and to others that I am just not cut out for that role, for that position, and so I'm resigning, and I've decided that from here on out, I'm going to go ahead and let God be God, be Lord of the universe. Of course, my friend did it that way for dramatic effect, but it got the message across. The Lord had been working in his heart to bring him to that realization that he had actually, in several different ways, been trying to do God's job for him and that it wasn't working out very well. He'd been presuming to play God. Let God be God. Let God be God. Let God be God. That's the message that Pastor James wants to get across to us in this section of his letter that we're coming to today. You can take the study guide out of your worship folder so you can track with me this morning. Let God be God. And when you think about it, it just makes sense, right? I mean, how many human beings are actually qualified to run the universe? (laughs) How many humans have the full scope of knowledge that would be required to oversee 7 billion people, guide all of human history to fulfill its purpose while keeping all of the galaxies in place? How many? I mean, zero, right? None. Zilch. Nada. Only God is qualified to do that. And James will say to all of us today, since that's the case, we all would do well to let God be God. And what he has in his crosshairs here in this section is what I think we could refer to as arrogance, human arrogance. And he's been tracing that theme at at least since the end of chapter 3 of this letter where he was contrasting God's wisdom, you might remember this, with worldly wisdom. And he said that people who possess God's wisdom are humble and meek and gentle, but the worldly wise are boastful and proud. We saw in the early part of chapter 4 that if you trace relationship conflict, the conflicts we have with each other as humans, if you seek to find out what's at the root of that, you will always find pride. Selfish pride is always at the root of conflict. And James told us, God opposes the proud. He stiff arms proud people, but he gives grace to the humble, to the humble. He concluded that section with that wonderful promise that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up. 
And so this contrast between the ugliness of pride and the beauty of the humble life has been a prevalent theme in, in this book, in his letter. In today's passage, James has two things on his mind, two manifestations of arrogant pride. Apparently, he had heard about the way that some people were acting, and it bothered him. And it felt to him like they were being arrogant and presumptuous and trying to play God, and he aims to call them out. And so first, in verses 11 and 12 of James 4, he says, in essence, this, stop acting like you are superior to other people. Stop acting like their self-appointed judge. Listen to what he said. Verse 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What a problem this is. What a problem this is in our world. What a problem this is even in our church. How easy it is to begin to think, you know, I've pretty much got it right, and everybody else doesn't have it right, and if everyone thought more like I think, then the world would be a better place. You know, how this has plagued me for many, many years. Honestly, it continues to nip at my heels to this very day. Human arrogance and pride. And so James, as you see here, is talking about how we treat people and what we say to them and what we say about them. He's talking again about our words. He's talked about that before, hasn't he? He's talking about our words again, our judgmental, condemning words, tearing people down in their presence or running them down in their absence or on Facebook or Twitter. But hasn't James already taught us that what comes out of our mouths has a source, that it comes from somewhere? We learn this, right? What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. And so really, this is a heart issue. If I'm belittling people or cutting them down or painting them in a negative light to others, it's because in my heart, I feel like I'm superior to them. And I want others to, to know that and feel that. My words simply reflect my love affair with me, with myself. And so James starts to build a case here. He's building a case for why speaking against other people and slandering them and judging them is evil. But the tack he takes is not what we would expect. James could have said, look, stop cutting people down because it'll hurt their feelings. He could have said, stop cutting people down with your words because you wouldn't want them to do that to you. He could have made his appeal to the golden rule. He could have said, stop cutting people down because it's just mean. You're being mean-spirited when you speak like that. But, and he could have said any of those things, and they would have all been true. But he kind of takes a different angle here. His appeal is more theological than relational. You're going to have to pay close attention to follow his line of argument here, okay? So he says four things. First, he says, judging other people is tantamount to judging God's law. And I believe his reference to the law here is a reference to what he's already 
in chapter 2 and verse 8 called the royal law. And it's a royal law because it was given by the king. And it is the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that, Jesus, of course, reiterated that, but it was, it's found in the law, the Mosaic law, if you want to write this reference down, Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself, was part of God's commandment to His covenant people Israel in the Old Testament. And James is saying, you know, tearing people down with your words is a failure to love them. It's a, it's a failure to love them as Jesus would have us love them. It is a violation of that royal law, but he's saying it's more than that. It's almost like saying, in effect, I don't like that law and I don't have to obey it. And if I were in charge, there wouldn't be a law like that that people are obligated to follow. So I was thinking about that. I was trying to think of a modern-day analogy to that kind of attitude, and the best thing I could come up with is the posted speed limit signs out on the highway. It's the law, right? These signs, you know these signs, they have little digits on them, and you know, we're driving along, and we're thinking thoughts like, stupid law, stupid sign, seriously? I'm supposed to only go, what, 65, 70? This baby will go 90, you know, and I want to go as fast as I want to go. I think it's a stupid law, and whoever made it ought to be fired. If I were in charge, there wouldn't be any speed limits. Just go as however fast we want to go. That's kind of the attitude that James is, is attacking here. You know, he says, you know, when you, when you cut people down with your words, you're, you're, you're not loving them. You're violating the royal law in Scripture, and that's like saying that law shouldn't be a law, that it's a dumb law. And second, he's saying sitting in judgment on God's law is, in effect, placing yourself over the law instead of under it. Like being above, like, I'm above the law. I don't have to do this. Third, he says, placing yourself over God's law is tantamount to playing God, like infringing upon the rights of deity. And fourth, judging people, he says, is God's job, and you're not God. I don't think most people think about it like that. I mean, think about the last time you gossiped about somebody or cutting someone down, trashing them to make yourself look better. When you were doing that, did you think, I'm revolting against God here. I'm leading a coup against deity to overthrow the king from his throne. I'll bet you didn't think that. But that's how James would characterize it. And then this thought hit me, who does that sound like? Usurping God's throne, pushing him off the throne, leading a revolt against God, wanting to take his place. Who does that sound like? Does that smack of Lucifer? Would you have ever imagined that you were actually imitating Satan when you were seeking to exalt yourself at someone else's expense, that you were dancing with the devil? Friends, this is evil stuff. It's evil. And our Lord, through His servant James, is calling us away from self-exalting, cutting, degrading, humiliating, accusing, slandering, condemning talk. If that's what's in our hearts and on our tongues, He's calling us to repent, isn't He? He's calling us to repent of this sin. And He apparently wants to put the fear of God in us because He says, hey, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. That's who you're messing with, he said. And who are you to judge your neighbor? 
my wife and I were talking about this this week, and she said, well, does that mean we shouldn't ever confront someone and speak strongly to them? And certainly, this James isn't trying to say that we should never tell people the truth, never confront them about their sinful lifestyle. That's what James has been doing this whole letter. <laughs> That's what he's been doing. We should do that, shouldn't we? But we should do it in humility, in meekness, like Paul said, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. This is about our hard attitude towards other people. If I'm saying something to them, am I saying it to them because I truly care about them and I truly am concerned about their well-being? Or really, if I was honest, am I just trying to elevate myself above them so that I feel superior? I've noticed that one of the effects of the gospel on my own heart in recent years is that even though I have this ability to see and point out other people's flaws and failings and inconsistencies, now there's this little voice inside of me that says, you know what, Steve? It's in you too. It's in you too, buddy. In your flesh, you are completely capable of doing the exact same thing that you're pointing out in that person's life. It's in you too. The gospel tells us that we humans are all more sinful than we ever dare admit. And I have come to believe that when we really get the good news down deep in our bones, it has the effect of leveling the playing field in how we view and treat other people to where we say, you know what, maybe I am stronger in this area than you are, but there's likely another area that you're stronger than I am. We all need Jesus to save us from ourselves, right? From our own selfish pride and to keep saving us every day. The gospel will puncture our pride, punctures our pride. I think James would concur with Paul who said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Paul who said, in lowliness of mind, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So let God be God. Stop presuming to be other people's judge. That's God's job. It's not your job or mine to render judgment on somebody else. God will judge, the Bible tells us. He will judge the living and the dead one day. Only God has the knowledge and perspective to do that accurately and to do it well. Only He knows the past, present, and future. Only He knows the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. Only He can see everyone's behavior. God will judge well. We must resist the fleshly impulse to feel superior to other people, place ourselves above them. We must let the gospel that we preach to ourselves daily humble us. Then, if you weren't feeling convicted enough yet about your selfish pride, James moves on to another way that we humans try to play God sometimes. So first, Stop acting superior to others like you're their judge. And second, stop acting like you are sovereign over the future. Because only God is. Verse 13, now listen. <laughs> Here's James. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and then poof. I inserted that. Poof. <laughs> Vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Now, don't misunderstand, James. This is not an indictment against people who craft business plans. It's not an indictment against those who make economic forecasts. James is not against Christians trying to build a business in order to make money. He's not against that. If you read it carefully and in its context, you can see what James is aiming at here, can't you? It's arrogance, presumptuous arrogance, presuming upon the future by totally leaving God out of your plans, failing to acknowledge God's sovereignty over all things. You could call this the great omission, leaving God out, ignoring God and His role as the sovereign Lord of the universe and of our lives. I wonder how many of you at the company you work for have a part in crafting the business plan for the future. Could I see your hands? Okay, a good number of you. Yeah, yeah. We should pray for you, right? Those are important planning meetings. Those are important sessions. Those are important decisions you make when you look into the future. I was talking to a guy recently who works in a business, and he said, you know, nearly all of us on on staff there are Christians. I think he said 12 out of the 14 people who work there are believers. Some of you hear that and you're drooling, you know. He said, you know, in the mornings we all come together. All of us who know Jesus come together and we pray. And we offer our day to the Lord. And as a business, whenever we have major decisions, he said, we come together and we pray. And we say, God, lead us here. You know, we're, we're depending on you. They do Bible study a couple times a week at lunch. That guy's a blessed fellow, wouldn't you say? Some of you give your left arm to work at a company like that. Well, I think what they're doing, what they're trying to do anyway, is, is to adopt the kind of outlook that James is encouraging here. Just humbly acknowledging that God is sovereign over all things, including their business, including their future plans. But with these merchants here that James is talking to, do you see any of that kind of humility in how they're laying out their plans? Do you see anything like that? No. God is absent. We're going to go to this town or that town. We're going to set up shop. We're going to make money. No mention of God. God is conspicuously absent from their thinking and from their planning. I wonder what would happen where you work if you found out who the other Christians are who work there, the other believers are, and if even just once or twice a week you pulled those folks together and said, you know, let's let's just take a few moments here and pray. Let's just commit our day, our week to the Lord. Let's commit this business to the Lord. Let's acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things. I wonder if if you did that, and if it was just two or three of you, or maybe eight or nine, I wonder if it would start to make a difference in the climate of the place where you work. It might. It might. I don't know, maybe God would call you to be the catalyst at your workplace to start something like that. Maybe the first step is just finding out who are the other believers here. Well, James is contending that it's presumptuous to map out the way that you want your future to unfold without acknowledging the one who actually controls the future. And to back up his point, he makes two assertions 
I think if we're honest, we would have to agree with. First, life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. We don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And, and that's being generous, isn't it? You don't even know what's going to happen today. I mean, you got, you know, you made your plans. Okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to put some clothes on. You know, I'm going to go to church. And then when we're done, we're going to go down the street to La Tradition. And here's what I'm going to order off the menu. And it's going to be great. And I'm going to go home and watch some football. And I'm taking a nap. That's your plan, maybe, but you don't know that that's going to come about. You don't know that for sure. Life is uncertain at best, is it not? It's unpredictable. It's subject to change on a moment's notice. He says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And then he says, you're like a, a, a vapor, a wisp of smoke. Life is fragile. Man, our lives are, are so transitory. We're like a wisp of smoke that lingers and hovers in the air for a few seconds and then dissipates. It's gone. Listen to me. Listen to me. That little device in your pocket could vibrate at any moment with a message that could change the ballgame for the rest of your life. It's happened. It's happened this week to people in this church. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that so that we all realize we're not as in control of our lives as we sometimes think. We're not. Just in recent days, I've come across a young man who was driving his car. He was at an intersection. He got T-boned at the intersection. And in one frightening moment, his whole life was changed. He's been in the hospital going through surgeries this week. Talk with a fellow who thought his job was secure, he told me. He said, I thought my job was pretty secure. One email on one Wednesday changed the whole ballgame for him. It wasn't as secure as he thought. Come across two couples, two couples who each made plans to move, to relocate from this state overseas to another country uh, with the promise of a particular pursuit and engagement there. But when they got there, it wasn't what they were promised. And now they're like, now what do we do? Now everything is all up in the air. Everything is uncertain. Precious lady who was with us just a few days ago had a heart attack. She's with the Lord. Another lady just this morning, I got a message after the first celebration. One of our other precious ladies is on the edge of eternity as we speak. I just saw her on Thursday. Listen, life is, is uncertain. It's fragile. We, we think we've got the reins. We think, yeah, I, I got my life. Oh, no. No, no. We're not in charge. We're not as in charge as we think we are. Our wonderful plans that we've, you know, laid out, they might come about. They might. Or they might not. We know that James was a student of Proverbs. Listen to these wise sayings from that book, Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart... A man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. 1921, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And given that, given that reality, doesn't it just make good sense to do then what James is instructing us to do in this chapter Yes, we can lay out our plans. Nothing wrong with that. We can make decisions. We can make choices. And those choices do influence the future. James would not deny any of that. But ultimately, he's saying we are not in charge. 
And James tells these businessmen that he was writing to, he says, instead, instead of being so presumptuous, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. Lord willing, we'll move to that city and set up shop and conduct business and make money. Now, maybe you're a little put off by that because you know people who like to tack that little phrase onto every sentence, you know, Lord willing, if the Lord wills. Yeah, I'm going to head over to Giant Eagle and pick up some milk, Lord willing, you know, or Lord willing, we can go to Logan's for lunch today and Lord willing, they'll bring us out a fresh basket of those mouth-watering buttered rolls like they do over there. We hope the Lord's willing. And so this can be overdone. But understand James here, and we're getting to know how this man thinks, aren't we? In his mind, our words come from our heart. And so this statement, this spoken statement, if it is the Lord's will, arises in his mind from a faith-filled heart. And I see at least three heart attitudes reflected by that little phrase. The first is surrender. Surrender. If it is the Lord's will, meaning... I've surrendered my will to Him. My plans, my dreams, my desires, my hope to be married, my dream to have children, my desire to attend that university, get that degree, work at that company, live in that city, make that salary, buy that house, drive that car, my dream to have one of my children become a lawyer or a professional athlete, or an artist, or a pastor. Sure, I want all those things, but I've surrendered them to God. His will is what I want. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Lord, I want what you want. I want that more than anything. Like Jesus in the garden, right? Not my will, but yours be done. I've surrendered my dreams to God. By His grace, I can be content with whatever outcome He chooses, if it's the Lord's will. I'm surrendered, surrendered. I wonder what you might need to surrender to God today. What dream, what hope, what plan, what heart's desire. You just need to say, God, it's yours. Second hard attitude we could call subordination or submission, and those are bad words in our culture, but not in God's culture. If the Lord is willing, is in effect a way of saying, he's the master and I'm the servant here. I'm restating, reaffirming my servant status. He's the master. He doesn't exist to do my will. I actually exist to do his will. It's like having a boss at work, right? If my boss wants me to do that, then that's what I'll do because he's my boss. I'll move to that town. I'll conduct business there if that's what my master wishes for me. I do his bidding. I march to the beat of his drum. That's the mindset of a servant, right? I exist for him if it is the Lord's will. And then the third attitude I see arising from that little phrase is, is dependence. If it is the Lord's will, meaning without Him, I, I can't do anything of any value. 
any eternal value. Like Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And all that you attempt to do without me is nothing. When I'm down, I need his hope, don't you? When I'm weak, I need his strength. When I'm confused, I need his wisdom spoken into my heart through his word and through his people. When I'm ministering, I need his spirit in me, controlling my mouth and my heart and my mind. I need him empowering me to minister in the power of the spirit. When I'm anxious, I need his presence calming my heart. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Listen, have you, let me ask you this. What's keeping your heart beating right now? What's keeping your brain waves functioning as they should? What's keeping your lungs respirating? This moment, is it not God? Are you not dependent upon God for your very life? That's why James says, you know, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. We'll get up tomorrow morning if it's the Lord's will. We are dependent upon Him for every breath we take. And we forget this, don't we? Until something comes along in life that kind of blindsides us and we go, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not in charge. I'm a totally dependent being. If it is the Lord's will, the surrendered, submissive, dependent attitude. You know what? Anything other than that kind of attitude reflects a heart that is what? Proud. Inordinately self-sufficient. And as we saw, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, in thinking about how this fleshes out, I thought back to when the elders of this church a couple years ago first decided to adopt the multi-site strategy for continuing to spread the gospel in our city. And I remember thinking at that time, can, can we do this? Can we do this in a way, can we, can, can we, can we set up a process that allows Jesus, the Lord of the church, to, to exert his will, his influence on the process so that we're not just going out and saying, you know, we're going to go to this or that city in a year and set up shop and start conducting, you know, gospel ministry there. Is there a way we can craft a process that allows the Lord of the church to exert his will on the process? And we thought about it and we prayed about it. I wanted to be able to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that, and to say that sincerely. And what we felt led to do then, as many of you know, was different than we had ever done before in all of our other church plants. Rather than just setting a date, like here's our launch date and we're going to you know, move out on that date, rather than doing that, instead we put in place a set of standards or conditions, things that we felt would honor and please the Lord, things that He would want to see realized before we launched a new campus. And only when those were completed, only when they were completed would we be confident, okay, we're following the Lord here. This is His will, His timing, His time frame, His timetable on this. And now, looking back on how the Whitehall campus came to be and discovering in that process that the leadership of an existing church in that community, the leadership had been praying this prayer, God, send us new life. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> Little did we know. And you know what? If we had run ahead of God's timing, we would have missed that. We would have missed that experience of seeing something happening before our eyes and saying, this is God. 
God has done this. We would have missed seeing the blending together of two congregations in, in a beautiful harmony that, that doesn't happen very often and be able to step back and say, this is God's work. God did this. If we'd run ahead on our own time frame and kind of made it happen, you know, we would have missed meeting David and Melissa Fannin and Rich and Cheryl Pope and Kathy and some of those precious people from East Baptist Church who invited us in and we saw God bring us together. And now the lives that are being touched and have been touched in Whitehall through that gospel-centered congregation. It's a beautiful thing. But humanly speaking, would it have happened if we just kind of did our normal process? And as we look into the future now as elders and we're praying, Lord, where do you want us to go next? Jesus, you're the head of the church. It's your church. You purchased it with your own blood. Direct our steps. We, we see this as such an important part of allowing him to exert his will on the where and the when and the how and the who. If it's the Lord's will, we'll live and we'll do this or do that. The hard attitude that hard attitude is the cure for pride. That hard attitude is the remedy for arrogance. That's the attitude of humility that prompts the Lord to give us grace. Look again at these final couple of verses, verse 16, as he's talking to these presumptuous businessmen again. As it is, he says, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So when we leave God out of our plans, when we tell other people about all the awesome things we're going to do and fail to acknowledge God as the sovereign Lord of the universe and of our lives, fail to even mention our reliance upon Him to even get out of bed tomorrow morning, we forget to acknowledge that God can change our plans anytime He wants. James saying, that's arrogant, that's boasting, that is evil. You see, we, we must develop a, a full-orbed theology of sin, of what sin is. Sin is not just the bad things that people do. I mean, that is sin. But it's also the good things that people fail to do. There are sins of commission, as you know, and sins of omission. And verse 17 here is the classic text in the Bible giving credence to the idea of sins of omission. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So, listen... If I asked you, think over your past week, think over this last week, did you murder anyone? Did you steal anything? Did you commit adultery this last week? Many of you would kind of sit back and go, nope, I'm good. No black marks on my chart this week. But if I ask this, was there anything last week that you should have done but didn't? Did you include the Lord in all of your plans? Did you pray over every decision, acknowledging God's sovereignty? Then your response might be a little different. You might do what I would do, which would be to hang my head in shame and say, no, I failed miserably in a lot of those areas. Studying for this, I heard a preacher say this week, the book of James will crush you apart from the cross. And he's right. He's right. Let's admit it. We've all sinned this week. 
Without a doubt, there was some good that God was calling you to do this past week, and you didn't do it. Same for me, and it's a sin of omission. But I would say this, if you know and believe the gospel, that realization won't crush you. It won't. In fact, I believe that having a full-bodied understanding of sin is necessary for having a full-bodied appreciation of the gospel of the good news. The good news that Jesus Christ not only avoided sins of commission, but he also did everything right. Can you imagine a perfect two-year-old? A perfect teenager, for crying out loud? It's hard to even envision, isn't it? An absolutely pristine Pure as the driven snow, 18-year-old, 25-year-old, 33-year-old. Jesus was perfect, no sins of commission, no sins of omission. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. He loved his neighbor as himself all the time. He was perfect, and yet he said, I will take your sins upon myself, and I will give you, if you put your faith in me, my perfect straight-A record of righteousness. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. He said, I'll take your sins, your sins of commission, your sins of omission. I'll take them upon myself. I will sacrifice myself in payment of your sins, and I'll give you my perfect righteousness so that when you stand before God, he sees not your record, but my straight-A report card. Now, who got the better of that deal? That's why we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God James doesn't have to crush us because we all have millions of sins of omission if someone was counting for which we would rightly be condemned by the justice of God but our Savior stepped in, took it. And if you've believed in that good news with all of your heart, you are perfectly righteous before God because of Christ. That's the good news. Praise God for that. That's the news that we revel in and celebrate every time we come to the Lord's table, right? We take the bread, we take the cup, and we go, thank you, Jesus. Oh my, I was doomed apart from you. But by your blood and by your crushed body, I am saved, forgiven. I hope that will be your attitude when you come in just a few moments. But first, I have a challenge for you. Based on the sermon that we just heard from James, because perhaps now you're, more, you're seeing more clearly how evil it is to try to play God, try to take his role, you know, supreme judge of the earth, <laughs> sovereign over all things. I wonder today if you're willing, like my pastor friend was, to submit your own letter of resignation as head of the universe. Are you prepared today to climb down off the throne and let God be God in your life? And if the Lord is prompting you towards that and telling your heart that He is completely capable of carrying out His job description without your help, and you're now willing to get out of the way and let Him, I invite you to acknowledge that by signing the statement of resignation on the back of your outline. See it there? I am hereby giving notice that I am resigning as head of the universe effective immediately. I've decided to let God be God. Some of you need to do that today. You say, well, I don't act that way. I don't act like I'm head of the universe. Let me talk with your spouse. (laughs) 
See what they have to say about that. Let me talk with your kids. Let me talk with your colleagues at work. There's some of this in all of us. I pray that we will all let God be God. The sole judge of humanity, the only one who really is in control of everything, to be the one that we say, be in control of my life. Be in control of me. Let's let God be God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for shooting straight with us, telling us the truth about reality and life and you and us and our hearts. Lord, it's true. We are in a love affair with ourselves. And yet, as you say in your word, Jesus died for us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for you who died for us. Lord, I pray that today, all of us in this room who heard the word from James would be convicted in our hearts to let you be God in our lives. Stop trying to play God with others and stop acting sovereign over our future, Lord. I pray that in the workplaces, offices, campuses around Columbus, there would be new little groups springing up, prayer groups that are acknowledging your lordship every day. As we come to your table now, Lord, make this a special time. Meet us in a special way. Remind us of the greatness of your sacrifice, the seriousness of our sin, the wonder of your grace, and forgiving and cleansing all who believe. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.